Welcome to the Violence Design Lab podcast, episode number 35. In addition to our normal audience of violence designers, fight choreographers, and stage combatants, this episode is also targeted for playwrights and screenwriters. Our topic today, how do you write a good fight scene? How do you make sure that your version of the fight is the one that gets put on stage? Who controls the choreography or owns the scene? Do you want to win that fight? Stay tuned, out swords and to work with all. Welcome to the Violence Design Lab podcast. Now here's the mad scientist himself, David Barefoot. Greetings everyone, David here. If you're just joining the podcast for the first time, I am the founder of the Violence Design Lab at violencedesignlab.com. I have been designing theatrical violence for live theater since 1992, and I am here to be your virtual coach and online mentor related to all things fighting. I want to encourage you to improve your stage combat, to coach you to choreographing better fights, and to train you to tackling the challenges of theatrical violence design. As I mentioned in the intro, this episode is aimed squarely at the playwrights and screenwriters out there. I'm trying to talk to you today specifically to help you write better fight scenes. A lot of plays and movies include violence in their stories, and I want to give you a little insight on how violence designers view these inclusions, how we modify them, tinker with them, and where the boundary between creative control of the playwright or screenwriter and the artistic input of the violence designer lands when it comes to a production of your play. My experience with violence design is fairly well documented on this podcast. That's that's why I'm here, after all. But I have had a little bit of experience with playwriting. I've had, I believe, three one-acts uh, uh, produced, as well as two full-length shows, uh, most of which included violence of some kind. And so, while I don't style myself as a master playwright by any means, I have been on the other side of the script and have seen my uh, writings come to fruition in a live production in collaboration with other people, including other fight choreographers. It's an interesting experience, and I'm hoping that that will help you as a playwright or a screenwriter to understand a bit more of the process on uh, the violence design side. The first thing when it comes to a fight scene, you have to understand as a writer the kind of work that that violence is doing for your script. This is the purpose of the violence from the playwright's perspective. Now, for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to be talking playwrights for live theater more than I'm addressing screenwriters for movies, just because the vast majority of my experience has been in live theater. Some of the things that I say will apply to movies, but if you have more experience in that genre and something glares is not applicable, please know that uh, I'm talking mostly about uh, the theater and you can adapt or cherry pick or disregard any information that doesn't seem to fit. So, when it comes to the purpose of the violence, it really depends where it is in the script. It matters. Early violence, violence that happens in in perhaps the first scene or the first couple of scenes, can have a few different functions for the story. The first is it demonstrates character. They say that actions speak louder than words, and a picture is worth a thousand words, and those kinds of uh, 
idioms that we have in our language are really proverbs that speak about the power of seeing someone do an action means more to us than hearing them talk about an action. So when we use violence to demonstrate character, there's a whole range of things we can be illustrating. We can show that someone is incredibly evil or brutal. Darth Vader's introduction in Star Wars, yes, the fourth one or the first one, whichever way you look at it, was amazing. He walks through this firefight as all these rebels are getting mowed down by the stormtroopers, grabs a guy by the throat, lifts him off his feet, interrogates him, then crushes his larynx and drops him to the floor. That violence said buckets about that character in just a few short actions. We can also demonstrate the character's skill. We can show this person as as a very competent fighter. Um, it, you, you'll see this often in movies. Kindergarten Cop was a great example. Um, I mean, it's an old movie, old Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, but it establishes him as this tough cop who just goes into uh, like a drug house and just arrests these dealers by just beating the, them to near half to death, uh, including guns and knives and all this stuff, just to show how skillful as a cop this character was, because it, we needed that to set up how sort of a fish out of water he was in a kindergarten classroom. We can also use this early violence to show our character is a hero. Maybe Stanley the accountant gets involved in a mugging where he was really not involved and had no business jumping in, but it demonstrates something about his character that he feels the need to be a hero or to jump in and save another person. So you can use the violence to demonstrate character. Another good way to use early violence is to set the tone for the audience, to kind of let them know what kind of show they're going to be in. Um, there are some shows that are just brutal shows all around. Lieutenant of Inishmore is one, for example. And early violence showing that he is going over the top and sort of overreacting uh, in a violent manner to what we might expect really sets the tone and says we're in for quite a ride. These are also good for shocking the audience. If you have a, a script that you just want to overwhelm the audience and just make them sit back in their seat and overwhelmed, setting an early violence uh, that is very brutal, very shocking, very in-your-face can set that tone. Violence, especially in early uh, scenes, creates a conflict, or it sets up an inequity. If uh, a, a character is murdered, uh, that conflict there, finding the murderer or revenging uh, their death, can become a central conflict for the whole play, and that violence is a quick way to do that. We already uh, assume that if a character's loved one is killed, they want to either bring the, the, the perpetrator to justice or kill them or in some ways resolve something. And we know the lengths to which that uh, perpetrator will go to achieve what they want. The last function of early violence is pure entertainment. James Bond films are all about this. We see that opening sequence where there's usually a lot of shooting and planes flying and hang gliders and, and submarines and everything else that you can throw in there has no bearing on the rest of the plot. It does demonstrate his character's skill, but mostly it's just another excuse for a great ski scene uh, along with some gadgets and skydiving and everything else they can throw in there just to entertain the audience. 
When you're in the middle of the script and you include violence, now we're usually talking for a, a few different reasons. The first is for a plot development or a plot twist. Often this is a character death or a consequence. Romeo and Juliet, for example, uh, Mercutio dies, well, and, and Tybalt dies in Act 3. And that really spins the story off in a different direction. Before it was kind of a romance, and we're like, oh, that's great. They're kind of being all lovey-dovey. And, oh, they, they get married. This is going well. And suddenly, bang, there's this big plot twist because of the violence. And then it sends us off into this other unrecoverable direction. Character development is another uh, great use for middle-of-the-play violence. This time you can maybe, this is where you get the training montages in movies. We see the character getting uh, more skills, being taught. Or this is where the, the, the characters have finally decided, you know what, I'm going to fight. Maybe they've been uh, pacifistic uh, heretofore in the script. Maybe they haven't been involved because they didn't want to get in the middle of, of a very complicated situation. Whatever it is, violence in the middle represents a commitment uh, that they are going to see this through whatever it takes. Middle script violence also gives the audience a sense of progress. Uh, If you remember the old, I guess, 80s uh, Karate Kid movies, they saw him getting beat up at the start, but by the middle, he's holding his own a little better. Often there are some early victories for characters against minor antagonists at this point. This is not your, your big bad, it's the henchman or, the, uh, or somebody else that's there to basically show how the character is progressing. So it gives us a sense of progress. Violence towards the end or at the climax of your script really is about final resolution, whether that's by killing the enemy, neutralizing one or more of the parties, or simply by deciding that violence isn't the answer. Climaxes that involve violence are usually saying, are usually finishing up because of violence. There's an old adage that violence never solved anything, but it solves a whole lot of plays, at least, when you look at the conflict. If there is... Uh, uh, a lot of things that, that can be resolved simply by killing the other person, at least temporarily, of course. Long-term, of course, violence doesn't solve it, doesn't make problems go away, but you know what I mean. Okay, now, so once you know as a playwright what the, the violence is there for, the work that it does in the script, you have to drill down a bit and find the character goals. In, in other words, the purpose of the violence from the character's perspective. I always tell my students, whether they're just stage combatants or they're violence design interns, I tell them that there's no such thing as a sword fight or a gunfight or a fist fight. There's only a fight between these specific characters. Focus on the relationships of your characters. What's going on between them? That's the point of the violence. If your the point of your violence is really, look, I'm going to show you all these moves that, that I've learned, that gets boring really fast. Now, that's not to say you can't throw in a lot of acrobatic moves and a lot of really fancy, fancy and creative choreography. We love that, as long as then we're showing the character's skill or doing something else. If you're putting in the moves just to show the moves, this is the wrong format. A play is not a demonstration of historical fighting styles. It's not uh, a showcase 
for student achievement. It's a story, and it's a story about characters in relationship. So that means that violence happens for a reason in a script. In the real world, sometimes we often talk about or or experience violence that seemingly has no reason. Uh, You take, as this recent tragedy in Las Vegas, there was no obvious motivation for the shooter to open fire on all those people. They hadn't done anything overtly to him, certainly, and there was nothing that was obvious that could have that prompted this level of violence. But you'll notice immediately what we do as people is we start looking for the reason. The FBI investigates his background. They try to find his computer. Were there notes that he left? Why did he do this? We are fascinated by the motivations behind violence. As a playwright, then, you need to know what the character is motivated to violence for. Why? What happens? It happens for a reason. And there are some broad categories that I think will help you to figure out the reason and then therefore shape the kind of violence that happens in your script. The first is social. This category has a lot of different flavors to it, if you will. It might be a dominance or hierarchy thing. That This is the classic example of the two guys in the bar that one claims that the other is looking at his girlfriend or or bumped him or said something, you know, uh, insulting. Basically, this is two gorillas beating their chests or two dogs peeing on bushes. They're trying to show who's the toughest, who is higher status or uh, above in the, the hierarchy. That's That's one kind of social violence. The educational kind, I'm going to teach you a lesson, Uh, violence ranges everything from spanking a child, which sometimes we have to do on stage, and that falls under stage combat, and that is violence to be educational. It can be, uh, you know, a gang beating down a person who went uh, to one of their competitors uh, to, to, to get some drugs, and so they beat this person down to teach them a lesson. It can be a duel of honor, uh, someone accused me of cowardice, so I feel I have to shoot them in order to reclaim my honor or standing in society and prove that I'm not a coward. The thing about social violence is that, in general, the point of the violence is not to kill the other person. Now, it does happen, of course. Certainly in, in duels, it did happen. But if you look historically, most of the formal dueling uh, bouts are to first blood. This is a little easier to get to first blood without death when you're using a sword as opposed to when you're using a pistol because sometimes when that, that pistol shot goes through your brain, well, first blood and first death is about the same time. So certainly death happens in social violence, but it's not the goal. When two guys go at it in a bar, we generally assume they are going to punch each other, maybe kick, maybe throw each other on the ground or into a table. We don't assume that they're going to pull out machetes and start hacking the other person. That takes it to a whole different level, right? So when you talk about social violence, it's usually the goal is to have an effect socially on the other person, but usually without killing them. Injuring them, fine, but not killing them or creating uh, gross permanent injury. Another broad category for violence is someone who wants resources 
from the other person. Now, this is a, a, a broad way of discussing it. Obviously, we think of money or possessions. This is the mugger in the street that pulls a knife and says, give me your wallet. That's a, a, a resource uh, predator. He's looking to get something that you have. He's using violence as a means to get it. Interestingly enough, of course, in that situation, he's also explaining the rules on how you can avoid violence. Give me your wallet or else I'll shoot. He's telling you, if you give me your wallet and don't cause me any problems, I will likely not shoot you. So it's an interesting social dynamic going on there as well. But basically, this violent perpetrator is using violence to get resources. Other kinds of resources are privileges or favor. Uh, I'm going to beat you up uh, and, uh, unless you give me the answers to this test. Uh, unless you, you know, um, you can see this in school. A bully pounds the, uh, the, the nerdy smart kid until they agree to write the paper for them. So it doesn't have to be money per se or possessions. Also, access to someone else's body is a kind of resource. This is where rape and sexual assault fall. I'm trying to, or some of them, there are some other things that will, I'll modify that statement later, but one of the um, the uh, kinds of resources is access to somebody else's body. Uh, so that is a resource they have that they don't want to give up, so the perpetrator uses violence to try to get. Now, the uh, other kind the third main category that I see a lot of violence falling into is emotional gratification. Now, this is what Roy Miller calls a process predator. In other words, the violence is an end in itself because the act of violence provides the character pleasure or a sense of power that's enjoyable. This is where a lot of uh, rape specifically falls into is it's not even the pleasure of the sex act, it is a feeling of gratification because of the power that one is exerting over another human being. But these are also your serial killers or the people who um, are torturing for, for no uh, interrogation reasons, uh, like it would be for as a resource of information. These are people who just enjoy hurting or killing other people. Um, often we call these people sociopaths. Um, but they are out there and they can be in your script. Another kind of emotional gratification, and I'm not sure if this is clinically in the same field, but I plan to put it here, is for revenge or emotional closure. You killed my brother. I'm going to kill you. I don't want anything from you per se. I don't need your money. I'm not doing this to teach you a lesson or to improve my social standing. I'm doing it because I need emotional closure and I feel that killing you will give that to me, that sort of revenge angle. Uh, each of those three kinds of violence, social, resource, or emotional gratification, they will affect the kind of violence that is choreographed for that moment. They are not the same. If I am choreographing a bar fight because someone got a drink spilled on them, that's very different than someone who goes into a bar to try to get revenge uh, on a guy who murdered my parents, right? So the setting is not the important thing. It is the relationship between characters. I'm going to switch gears for a second now and talk about uh, describing fight scenes in scripts. In other words, stage direction versus fight choreography. Now, 
the first thing that comes up is, well, who decides uh, what that violence is? Who owns the fight? Playwrights often give somewhat detailed descriptions in their work, especially modern playwrights who are used to movies. We describe the, the scene in our heads, and we put that on the paper. Uh, Joe snatches up the knife from the kitchen table, slashes it across Mary's face, but then Mary uh, knocks him down and hits him with a fireplace poker, whatever it is. Okay, We kind of explain that whole movie, in, fact, in effect giving choreography to the violence designer. The question is, are stage directions holy writ? We don't change lines lightly in American theater productions. We, uh, we'll, we'll cut, uh, if needed, occasionally. We are very reticent to add a single word into a production because we feel, well, those are the playwright's words and, and we should leave them alone. Part of the problem is where the stage directions originate. Sometimes they originate just from literally from stage manager's notes of the first production or the first notable production, and they are not written by the playwright. I had an entire uh, podcast a while back about stage directions and, and how you should ignore them, right? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. When a playwright writes stage directions, they are considered part of the work in theater. Dramatist Gill uh, even came out recently uh, and, and said specifically, playwrights own their work and therefore have the right to make decisions about all aspects of its presentation. This was in regard to the Edward Albee's uh, estate's decision to withdraw the production rights for a company in Portland, Oregon, who cast a black actor in uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. The Albee estate said that uh, that Albie had never intended anything like that. There were references in the script to this person's blonde or Aryan uh, look, and that they felt it was a disservice to the production to cast a, a minority in the role, and they pulled the rights. Now, that's another issue entirely, and I'm not going to get into that here, but conceivably, an, an estate or a playwright could do the same thing uh, for a piece of choreography that did not follow the stage directions as outlined by the playwright. That is, in fact, the law. Screenwriting, very different thing. I know for a fact there are differences there, but for playwrights, playwrights own their entire work. That's the theory. In practice, in reality, uh, describing exact choreography is about as useful as describing exactly what the character looks like. I mean, it, it gives a reader a visual picture of what you were imagining, but the reality of the production is likely going to be very different unless you're personally there to disapprove or you require clearance or approval before a production can proceed. So oftentimes a playwright will imagine... A, you know, a tall, dark-haired actor, and they'll get a medium-height blonde to play it. And they, the playwrights, while they do have the right to, I guess, sue or petition to shut down the production, it's often not worth it. And in my experience, I've never had a playwright come back and say, no, 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 that's not how I designed it. Now, the thing is, even if you have an idea of what you want for your violence, remember that Every theater that produces it and every cast that performs it is going to be different. 
the set is going to be different. Even if you detail it specifically in the show, their budget, their resources, and the shape of their stage is going to change that, which will cascade down and often change the choreography. But I think the more important thing to remember here is the violence designer is a specialist, and they may create better or more appropriate choreography than the playwright even imagined. Violence that fulfills the author's intent and goals even better. That is the whole point of collaborating with specialists. If I'm directing a show, I even if I have some experience with lighting design or or costuming, if I get a person who that who that is their entire focus, that's all they do, the final product is going to be much better than what I would have come up with, which is the point of collaboration. Same thing is true of your violence designer. I have written plays, as I said, that include violence and ignored my own stage directions. The stage direction says one thing, and when it comes to the show with this actor and with that set, I change the choreography. And I put on my violence designer hat and take off my playwright hat, and I design the better violence for what I have. So keep that in mind before you get too close-fisted with your... Um, with your idea of what exactly the violence looks like. But I'm going to give you some tips now on how to get the fight you want without giving choreography. Okay? First, what you want to do is detail the important plot points. Shakespeare is great for this. You know, they fight. Hotspur falls. Hamlet stabs Polonius through the curtain. They don't need to say how. He doesn't get verbose. Very often, especially in Shakespeare, we get literally two words, they fight. And that's it. And the rest is up to the designer. Shakespeare will tell us who dies or who gets wounded, and that's about it. They won't even tell us how. But if you want specific points to be in the violence, you need to incorporate them into the plot and especially into the dialogue. I promise you, in the third act of Romeo and Juliet, Mercutio always dies, and he gets stabbed at the moment of, of Romeo's interference with him. This is not my opinion. This is every time I've done the show, which is nine times, I think, at this point. Every time that happens. The interference is different ways. I can interpret, I, you know, he, I was stabbed under your arm. I can interpret that in a lot of ways, but basically, Romeo interferes at the exact wrong moment, and Mercutio dies every time. It's right there in the plot. It's in the dialogue. In Hamlet versus Laertes, there is a series of touches in that fencing bout that are in the dialogue and cannot be changed. I know that there will be a series of touches. I know they're going to change rapiers at some point when Laertes and Hamlet get mad at each other, and I know both Hamlet and Laertes are going to get stabbed with that rapier. It's in the script. And so Shakespeare's vision of that violence, which was highly specific continues throughout the ages, even though he didn't put in specific choreography. He didn't say Hamlet gets stabbed in the arm or slashes uh, Laertes across the face, anything like that. In the show uh, Killer Joe by Tracy Letts uh, that I choreographed in Chicago, there is a moment of forced fellatio on a chicken drumstick. Yeah, let that sink in. Yeah, I didn't come up with that my own. That That is Letz's invention. It's in the script. They talk about it. And that will be in Killer Joe every time that's produced because it's in the dialogue. It's in the plot. If you have an idea of what the fight would look like, 
but you don't have any specific plot points that need to be in there, but you have a feeling for it, let us know. Give metaphoric or evocative descriptions, uh, like two junkyard dogs fighting in the street, or, or she fights acrobatically and almost joyfully. Maybe uh, the beating is brutal, vindictive, and deliberate. I mean, those are the descriptions that a violence designer can run with and really just dig into, get you what you want, and get the, the intent of what you want rather than limiting themselves to the choreography that you can think of They'll take the specialist knowledge and experience and create choreography that's even better than what you might have imagined. So don't be afraid to describe the fight, but only put specific plot points into your dialogue, build it right into the dialogue and the plot, and then give evocative descriptions that give the feeling of the fight or who is trying to do what in the fight. Character goals are another way to uh, to frame a fight that you, that way you will get the fight you want in your script. Hey, if you've enjoyed this podcast, do me a favor and let others know about it. The best way to do that is to head on over to iTunes or head back there and leave me some stars and a review on the podcast page. I'd really appreciate it. And uh, I'd like to also remind you that this podcast is entirely supported by the generosity of you, the listeners. There's no ads, no corporate sponsorship. And I do have a Patreon uh, account set up. If you want to help keep this project going week after week, head on over to patreon.com forward slash violence design lab and enter your pledge. And there's different levels of reward and support. And it really helps me keep going. Your comments and feedback and emails, those are really appreciated. It gets somewhat lonely out here in, in podcast land sometimes. And I'm sorry that the uh, episodes have been a little more sporadic than normal. It's been a, a busy time for me with three shows going and, and a class. So, yeah, let me know your feedback. If you have an idea for topic suggestions or, or criticism or praise, let me know. I'd love to hear it. You can email me, of course, at violencedesignlab at gmail.com. Stop by the website, violencedesignlab.com. Or head on over to my Facebook page, which is, unsurprisingly, Violence Design Lab. Just search for it. So, until next week, keep the fights on stage and peace in your life. David, out. Thanks for listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast. For more tips, tutorials, and downloadable resources, visit us at violencedesignlab.com. 